Welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why it's always a bear and never, no matter what anyone tells you, a realtor in a fur coat. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, who with me is celebrating the second anniversary of the modern iteration of the locution Taking Ship, born on a sunny day at a bar in our nation's capital. Frank, good to be with you as always. On behalf of both of us, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for their compliments and critiques, and I particularly want to thank John Margolik for his lovely uh, introduction to all of his friends on Facebook uh, through a very generous compliment. And I'd like to urge everybody else to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in psychosis. That's right. Thanks, y'all, and thanks, John, especially. As we mentioned last week, uh, we're playing things a bit by ear this week and next, uh, so again, no guest today. Uh, but we implore you, good people, uh, to give no countenance whatsoever to rumors that we have been publicly shamed and are no longer received in polite society. That is the kind of outrageous slander, of stupefying and, I may say, grotesque falsehood that brings decent people into ill-deserved disrepute. And we won't stand for it here on Taking Ship. We won't stand for it at all. Yeah, there are novels written about that kind of ostracization, and it is just as much fiction with us. Correct. Uh, We're going to start today with uh, Uncle Frank and Uncle Ellie's Communications 101 training, or as we call it, the Taking Ship Center for Children Who Can't Communicate Good and Want to Learn to Do Other Stuff Good, too. Uh, We're going to start with, let's let's start with United Airlines, or as I've repeatedly called them, the Turkamata of Seating. Yes, indeed. For those of us uh, who uh, may need a primer on this, may not be familiar with the um, the incident in question, uh, that is to say anyone who has not been on the internet in the last two days, uh, on a United Airlines flight from uh, Chicago to Louisville a couple of days ago, United Airlines determined that it needed four extra seats. This was a full flight. United determined that it needed four extra seats so it could fly its own personnel to Louisville so they could staff another flight. Uh, United offered the customary bribes. Uh, you, you've seen this before. If, you would like, if you're would like, if you willing to give up your seat, here's 50 bucks in a sandwich. Uh, if you were willing to give up your seat, here's 150 bucks in a, in a better sandwich and so on until you give away and until you get the seats you need. But when they didn't have enough takers, they apparently used a computer to randomly select four seated passengers. These are passengers who have already been seated. This is, these are not people being turned away at the gate. Plane is full. Everyone's sitting down. Uh, four seated passengers, volunteers, as United uh, had the gall to call them, volunteers in their parlance, uh, to just be turfed out of their seats. So they randomly select four volunteers. Uh, to torture the word past all recognition, uh, and uh, and they weren't able to get enough even. So one of these volunteers, one of those passengers uh, seated with his wife was David Dow, a 69-year-old doctor from the uh, Louisville area, from Elizabethtown, Kentucky. He declined to leave his seat, uh, and so United did the only sensible thing, if you listen to them, which is to call the relevant law enforcement agents who dragged him from the airplane, badly bloodying him in the process. Video of the incident appeared on uh, social media appeared on social media. It's it's not it's not at all a pretty picture. It's a pretty grotesque and outrageous incident, and the response has been uh, strong, uh, almost but not entirely, almost uh, uniform and and condemnatory of United. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's really no way to put a good spin on this whatsoever on United's part. Uh, but one of the things that I find kind of interesting is that 
it wasn't United that beat and bloodied the guy. It was the cops. And rather than United kind of making that observation up front, I mean, this will get into kind of some of the communication strategy or lack of strategy. Rather than going after the cops for being at fault or passengers for whom at this point you'd think post 9-11 we would all be trained well enough to know that when law enforcement officials tell you to do something, you just go and do it. You don't fight and become belligerent. Um, but that still doesn't exonerate United, uh, but the cops are certainly no better in this situation. I, I'm going to, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a counterpoint here, which is, uh, fuck them both strongly and equally. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, it, it is true that United didn't specifically ask, uh, the relevant police, uh, the Chicago airport of the police, I believe, uh, they didn't specifically say, will you take this guy out of his seat and beat the absolute hell out of him? Uh, but on the other hand, they they kind of they didn't not do that, and I and I say that not in the kind of Archer sense of uh, of you know he didn't do it, but he did not do it. Although that's true as well. Uh, but when you call the cops to throw someone out, uh, you have to anticipate that's exactly what they're going to do. Like when you bring in law enforcement to when you bring in law enforcement to execute an order, uh, you expect that they are going to do precisely that thing up to and including physically hauling someone out of an airplane. Now, usually you would expect, and there have been a couple of other stories that have popped up since this incident of people who had similar treatment, seated passengers where the cops came in and said, we're going to handcuff you and drag you off if you don't go. Usually those people go. I, I grant it is conventional behavior for most people. If a cop tells you to get off a plane, that you get off, like you recognize that you're licked and you are, and you get off the plane. You don't necessarily make them drag you off. That's, but that's not, but that is not, that's not the point at all. The point is, if you, the point is, a, a private corporation called in law enforcement to throw a guy out of a seat that he paid for for no reason other than their own financial and logistical convenience. Yeah, and. There's no way to. I mean, those are just the facts, and it's disturbing as hell that there are there are some people, or at least United themselves, and their responses don't want to take any sort of responsibility for just that. And their response has been entirely awful from beginning to end, starting with the CEO uh, making excuses for why it happened to then suddenly leaking out information that the guy that David Doctor David Dow wasn't that great of a guy. Yeah, that was yeah. That's it's it, it started poorly. I mean, the, the United Zone, their first communication, which was an internal one, one of their first. So they issued the usual "We're looking into the incident" uh, uh, press statement, but their first substantive comment on this was an internal email that was released in which the CEO basically took the position of kind of, "Well, fuck this dude," uh, you know, and 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 that's that's a very bad way. To start an apology is to su- is to suggest actually you know what this guy had it coming and he probably should have gotten worse. The stuff that came out about uh, Dr. Dow's personal life afterward and he has had a, a very colorful past fifteen years, which is completely irrelevant to this issue. Yeah, uh, it, it uh, began with the Louisville Courier uh, Journal, the newspaper that dug into his past and, and released a piece about it, which a, a certain segment of the population seized upon as a way of sort of post hoc justifying this guy that went, justifying what happened, uh, even though again it's completely irrelevant. Yeah, I, I mean, there are so many aspects of this that are completely irrelevant. For instance, the fact that he is Asian is completely irrelevant. I mean, it doesn't make anything better, but that's not. I don't. I don't believe that he was targeted for any in any way, shape, or form. But again, it doesn't make it better or worse. It's just a thing that's distracting people. It's the incident in the. So it seems that he was chosen at random uh, by by this by this computer. So in that sense. Uh, certainly his ethnicity had nothing to do with it. 
I do think that part of the response to this, and I, and you know, for those for those of you who may have missed it, and judging by the uh, readership numbers, that's virtually all of you. Uh, I wrote a piece about this, the Huffington Post, a couple of days or yesterday. Uh, you can uh, check it out there. I make some of these points. I'm not going to regurgitate the whole thing there. I will say that the uh, the way that. It, there is a certain quarter within elements of the media and the sort of online public at large that has done a, a very familiar two-step with uh, with Dr. Dow's case, which is first to suggest that the person that the law enforcement agents or the relevant authorities who did the, who you know who caused this to happen, who did this, uh, didn't have any choice. What else were they supposed to do? Uh, that there was you know this this guy refused to comply with an order, so naturally beat the hell out of him. And pause for a moment and think about the absurdity of the idea of following the orders of an airline in any context except one of public safety. Right? This is not a public safety issue. Uh, you know, this would be. Um, you know, this would be like. Follow, this would be like. Well, he refused to order. You know, follow the. You know, follow the orders of someone who was making a sandwich. Uh, and so the police came in and beat him bloody. Like there's just there's not a. You know, it's it's an absurd concept. But. Uh, First, his Dr. Dow's action on the day has been examined in microscopic detail. And then thanks to the Courier Journal and others, there has been a kind of there's been a push through various media outlets uh, to talk about his, you know, his, as they put it, troubled past. And that two step of, well, first, he did something wrong on the day, but also he's not, a, you know, he, he's no angel to quote the New York Times on the slain teen Michael Brown is a very familiar two step when a figure in authority, usually a police officer, does something violent, usually to a person of color. Uh, so in that sense, I think in the initial incidents, I think his his race is probably was probably irrelevant. I, I believe that these people were chosen at random by the computer. Uh, in the response to it, I, I, it is it is it, it pushes coincidence to suggest that if this had been uh, you know a more relatable white dude uh, for a lot of the sort of white audience for this stuff, uh, that maybe he would have been demonized quite as badly. Yeah, I'm also I, I find the the reports were saying that he had told the. Uh, the airlines and he had told the cops that he's a physician and he has patients to see the next day. And in my book that should have immediately kind of the computer program should have moved on to the next person. I do think that as a society, we grant doctors and physicians a certain amount of leeway so that they can help other people, uh, you know, speed through things so that, you know, so they can get to the hospital in time if they have MD plates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But going back to some of United's kind of initial foray into communications as it should never be done sure they issued the initial we're looking into it to try to figure out what it, what what happened but the, the statement should have been we're looking into what happened in the meantime we're taking care of uh this particular individual we're going to cover all of his medic any in medical bills he in, in, encounters we're going to take make ensure that he gets to where he needs to get to on time and we're going to give free flights to his family forever would have been a pretty sure. good place to start yeah, abject contrition is the order of the day, and they they really missed the they really missed the ball in this. And this, in some respects, is you know this is one of the reasons that uh, you know that we refer to this as uh, as you know Uncle Frank and Uncle Ellis communications one hundred and one because this really is a one hundred and one. Like this is not a particularly nuanced deal. If you are in a position of authority and someone in your organization has desperately fucked up and hurt someone. Uh, don't 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 mince words. Uh, the initial thing we're looking into the incident. That's fine. Know what don't you know? Know what you need to you know. Gather your information. Don't say anything until you can figure out what's happened. Uh, but your first substantive communication at that point needs to be 
boy, howdy, did we mess this thing up? And this is this is you know this is how we're going to this is how we're going to fix this thing. And paying medical bills is you know is something you can say right off the top. Uh, as well as free flights. So, but I, I you know, I, I want to come back to something about this about this computer. And you you are right that uh, that they that there is an argument that they should have moved on when they found that the guy was a doctor. But truthfully, and this is the thing that most other airlines have talked about. And this is the one that United doesn't have a response for and can't really have a response for. Is most other airlines, and I know that both JetBlue and Delta have done this recently. Just keep ratcheting up the number. Uh, I mean, they stopped the bidding for, you know, so they go in and say, you know, well, anyone, is anyone willing to leave and, you know, is anyone willing to be thrown out of their seat for $800 in compensation? Some of them go up into the thousands just to buy their way, just to buy people out of their seats. And again, this was not an overbooked flight. This was United needing to move its own personnel. So they had the option of continuing to bribe people, just raising the number in order to get people in order to get people to take it. You know, you offer me enough money, sooner or later I will inconvenience myself. Sure. I inconvenienced um, myself once for eight hundred and fifty dollars. Sure, absolutely. Oh, I've inconvenienced myself for a good deal less than that. But that but that was on <laughs> that was on my own that was on, that was on my own time. Uh, but also this is the other thing. It you know, the idea was yes, I know it, the you know, Chicago and Louisville are not that far away. They could have driven there a lot of other things, but also Chicago O'Hare is a united hub. There's probably another plane somewhere. It's expensive, but is it any more expensive than? But is it any more expensive than, as it turns out, losing a billion dollars off of your stock stock valuation when when trading opens because you've done this awful thing and it's all over social media? Yeah, I, I mean, th- this kind of brings us to the next point of how it's you know awful thing and you've done a horrible thing and it's all over social media. And this is something I, I've been continually thinking about probably for the last eight or nine months. And it's kind of this idea that are we at some kind of breaking point as a society? And I really don't want to sound like Steve Bannon channeling Howen Strauss's book, The Fourth Turning, which is basically what Steve Bannon bases his whole philosophy on and the idea that the whole world is essentially going to come to an end in, as the fourth turn. Um, but between social media and the ubiquitousness of it and that there is no privacy and that everybody is sharing everything and that everything is instantaneous, mixed with the aspect of customer service getting worse and worse and service providers offering less and less for more and more money, that at some point you just expect something to break. And you sort of just expect at some point everybody's just going to wake up one morning and say, you know what, fuck this. There's a good argument to be. I mean, you you can make an argument to be bad to be. You can make an argument that for a certain portion of the population, that's what happened in November. Um, but Very but that's, true. that is for, that's for their own particular grievance. But I think you're, the point that you're making here is is onto something, which is you know this an incident like this was probably inevitable. And again, I'm not going to you know just regurgitate the the piece that I wrote, but but uh, you know th- this this was there is a trajectory in american travel of rampant overbooking uh which this which again not the case in this flight actually uh but over but overbooking and overselling both of them fairly common practice that usually one of the reasons it's fairly common practice is it usually doesn't result in uh too much chaos it it can but it but it doesn't always uh, rampant overbooking some fairly nebulous rules on who you refuse service to and who you don't uh, and and the general shittiness of the entire experience as a uh, you know as a domestic air traveler in, in the US were bound to cause an incident like this sooner or later and of course it was going to be captured on social media because again anything that occurs 
occurs in the public sphere and a good deal that occurs in the private uh, will end up on social media. And as someone who is so, you know, even leaving aside my, you know, even leaving aside my outrage over the incident itself and the and the the response to find fault with the with Dr. Dow, uh, even from a strictly professional perspective, you I mean, you've got to you have to anticipate as someone working for United. This is first of all, you know, it's on social media because it's on social media. But secondly, there's just going to be more and it's going to be worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I think we can go on and on like this for quite some time, but we'll yeah. probably bore our listeners a little bit too much. Um, but spare, th- then I will yeah. just close with this. Spare yeah. a thought for what United Airlines has done to the English language. Uh, this, you know, beyond, beyond the physical assault of Dr. Dow, the greatest crime here is without question what United did to English to describe what happened. Reaccommodated, the word reaccommodated, as in we had to reaccommodate Dr. Dow by dragging him from his seat and beating him bloody. Reaccommodated is the worst linguistic abomination since Bud Light, Lime, Bud Light Lime's Strawberita, or when uh, people started saying for all intensive purposes. And also, I have to, I can't let this go. That is not what volunteer means. Not at all what the word volunteer means. That has nothing to do with being a volunteer. It's like saying we're going to pick someone to be huskies. Yeah. He's not a husky dog. I don't care if you call him a husky dog. He's not a husky dog. Yeah, there's there's a wonderful uh, term that the military uses uh, to a great extent that is also kind of broached into the government to some extent. It's uh, voluntold. Yes, voluntold. Yeah, there's your port. There's your portmanteau. Yeah, but not even this. I mean, this is just this is just drafted anyway. It, uh, yeah, spare thought for the English language, United. You uh, bastards. I, I had a question. That, you know, once they decided to move into the 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 random selection process, did those four people still get paid? I don't know. You would hope so. I mean, although I wouldn't put anything like you had your shot. Boy, that'd be a tough bargaining position. You had your shot at the money, and now we're just serving you out. Yeah, just thrown out onto the tarmac. That is some kind of dystopian shit, right there. Your bags just heaved after you, (laughs) and stay out. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So now, turning, keeping with the theme of our. Communications 101 training, turning now to the administration and its peculiar yin-yang, its light-dark, its Jedi versus Sith, its perverse and god-awful Hegelian dialectic of malice and incompetence, we bring in Mr. Ballas himself. So the question is, are Steve Bannon's days in the West Wing numbered? Yeah, there's been a couple of pieces about... Uh, Trump saying things explicitly about Steve Bannon. No, in particular, there's uh, the the interview in the New York Post where he yeah the interview says, in the New York Post. I didn't really know this guy. Well. He joined. Yeah, the I don't know the man who came in late. Like, yeah, exactly. Really playing down his role. So, if you recall my analysis of last week, which for those of you who may not have listened to the episode yet or may have, it's you worth may have missed it, my my analysis of this is. <laughs> Oh, color me the happiest boy in all the world. I love Steve Bannon uh, uh, getting a dose of of his own uh, medicine of malice and contempt. It's absolutely delightful. Uh, And, uh, you know, know, not wanting to uh, miss an opportunity to pile on, the good people at Morning Consult, the polling firm, uh, gave us some numbers. They asked uh, whether people agreed uh, with uh, or supported Steve Bannon getting thrown off the NSC. And what they found is that 58% of respondents uh, thought it was a really good thing. Uh, 8% uh, thought it was a bad thing that Steve Bannon was thrown off the National Security Council. And 34% did not have an opinion. Uh, 
I again, I, I adore this. I adore everything about it. Uh, the only thing that will make me happier is the day when he's actually turfed out of the White House for good. Uh, but I also want to point out that's a very that's a very significant set of numbers because we now know with with exact uh, with exact precision the number of neo Nazis there are in America. It is eight percent of America <laughs> are in fact white supremacists. Yeah, which makes which pretty much makes sense. You know, the number that we've continually you and I have kind of continually talked about is. Uh, and again, when when Hillary brought up the idea of half his supporters uh, uh, were di- were uh, disgr- what did she say? Disgraceful, deplorable, deplorable. Thank you. That was the other D word: dwarf, dwindle, dwell. You know, one of those. <laughs> and damnable. Yeah. Uh, uh, when she said half, it, I mean, it was she wasn't that far off necessarily. I mean, the idea that one, you know, if you think that at the time his ceiling was about forty percent, so half is about twenty percent. And you think that one in five Americans hold some sort of deplorable view. That's not that outlandish to think. And if you think half of those are actually more than people who just kind of think that, hey, you know, women shouldn't be in the workplace or black guys aren't so great. So if you figure half of that 20% is actually the active, venom-breathing, you know, neo-Nazi, you know, Nazis marching in Skokie lunatics, there's your 8% that are supporting Steve Bannon. Yep, there we go. So thanks, Morning Council. You inadvertently identified an important constituency. Yeah, and we'd like their names, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but going on to the yin to the yang uh, is Sean Spicer, as some people have taken to calling him on Twitter, uh, hashtag Baghdad Sean, in honor of, uh, <laughs> of Baghdad Bob, who was uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, uh, minister of communications, who while bombs were falling behind him, was saying on TV that they weren't happening. Uh, it, it's sort of a lovely, lo- lo- lovely idea. Uh, the bombs were the bombs were simply reaccommodating the buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't want that top floor anyway. Exactly. And, and Sean Spicer, according to this poll that Frank just mentioned from Politico and Morning Consult, his numbers are twenty eight percent favorable, thirty seven percent unfavorable, and thirty six percent have never heard of him, and we'll count them as the lucky ones, like the folks who managed to avoid the first phase of the zombie apocalypse. Agreed. Agreed. That's, I mean, uh, you know, to, to not know who Sean Spicer is, is, you know, a, a joy forever. May they maintain that as long as they live. Uh, yeah, so these, these two guys are, are just hurtling. They're in a, are hurtling toward the gallows as fast as they possibly can. Uh, and I mean, it's sort of, it's as if there's, you know, two French aristocrats and someone has told them that the tumbril is at the door. And instead of slipping out the back, they're in a foot race to see who can get there first. It's crazy. Um, so, but, but, you know, and, and Bannon, I think was a, was a good, was a good length ahead until, but John Spicer, not to be outdone, uh, finds a second win, finds the strength and surges into something pretty close to a lead. Yeah, uh, so you know, digging into a little bit of again, uh, if people have been under a, a rock for the last few days, um, Sean Spicer, um, as only Sean Spicer can from the White House briefing room podium uh, in the James Brady briefing room, uh, I'll, I'll let Frank fill you in briefly on what he said, but uh, we we can we'll dive into it. Yeah, yeah, he he. He did. He did. He did bad. He did uh, bad. Sean Spicer did poorly. Uh, in in commenting on uh, Bashar al-Assad's uh, use of uh, of chemical weapons against uh, against his own people, Sean Spicer allowed as how uh, even Hitler, even Hitler, uh, didn't stoop so low to use gas. Now, are we talking own. about Adolf Hitler, the leader of the Nazis, or Dave Hitler, the guy down the block? 
Now we're talking about we're talking about Adolf Hitler. Dave Hitler has also not stooped so low as to use chemical gas on uh, on his own people, uh, but that's because he has other uh, he has other things he's worried about, uh, like how he got that last name and how he can get rid of it as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, we're talking about Adolf Hitler, uh, and 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 Spicer raised this point and then defended it. Uh, in the uh, in the in his press conference, uh, Hitler apparently was not low enough to use gas on his own people, which raises a number of questions. Not the least of which is, how does Sean Spicer think the Holocaust happened? Yeah, did he does he imagine that Hitler was down there just choking people out with his own hands eighteen hours a day? <laughs> I mean, is this the, is this what he thought was happening? Is you know down there you know boring them to death with long speeches? What can he possibly have been thinking? Yeah, I have, I have a general rule, and and this is one that I have I have really stuck steadfastly to, particularly in the uh, Trump era. Uh, there is no one under any circumstances in any way, shape, or form who should ever be compared or analogized to Adolf Hitler. Um, the Holocaust was a singular event in history. Adolf Hitler was a singular evil in all of history. And it is, uh, it, it, it is unjust uh, for, the, for the victims, uh, um, both of the Holocaust and the you know, 40 million people who lost their, lost their lives during World War II, to make any mention of Hitler in any context other than people drinking tequila in a bar. Go on. <laughs> You've never heard this joke. This is the worst, best joke of all time. And I am so glad that I now get to, uh, uh, imp- impenetrate this on our tens of listeners minds. So oh boy. Frank, why didn't Hitler drink tequila? Why? It made him mean. God damn it. <laughs> it is oh, the no. worst, best joke of all time. Oh, no. Oh, dear. And, oh, and dear, oh, dear. a week has not gone by that I have not thought or repeated that. I probably repeated that joke in some context at a bar when somebody ordered tequila. Oh, my God. That's okay. All right. Excellent. And this is now my gift to all of our listeners. Yes. Yes. You people had it coming. But you made, you've, made, you've made poor choices, and now you have to live with them, listeners. We'd apologize, but well, yeah, yeah, yeah it's fine. Uh, but back to Sean Spicer and his, uh, as a uh, former colleague of mine and a former uh, Bloomberg White House reporter uh, said on Twitter, and his weapons-grade stupidity. Uh, let's take a yes. look exactly at what was so offensive and why it was so stupid in the context in what he said. Yeah, so the I mean, it's it's pretty clear what was so offensive about this. Uh, Hitler did use gas on his own people. He gassed several million Jews to death. Like that was a thing that happened. He used chemical. He definitely used chemical weapons, and the context of it was particularly special because of the timing. Yeah, you really have to question uh, the fact that he said it. Uh, it's there's sort of. Basically, only three options as to why this was brought up. They were looking for a way to castigate Assad and show him to be an absolute evil. And some, you know, some junior person at the communications staff meeting in the morning suggested, hey, why don't we analogize him to Hitler? And that either wasn't shot down or was followed to some degree. And that leads us to point number two, in which Sean Spicer wasn't briefed properly to actually engage in that line of conversation past the point of just saying it and then being bailed out by the press corps for sort of misappropriating 
absolute evil in a context when it shouldn't have been. And then the third option is that it wasn't pre-planned and he was just, you know, like Jerry Seinfeld does at, you know, one of the crappy comedy clubs downtown just testing out lines. That's your you know, I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work on my. I'm gonna work on my Hitler material here in the here in front of the White House press corps. I think I got a good one. I don't have the timing right. Yeah. But I got a. You know, I, I've got. I've got a good. I've got a good couple. I've got a good two. I've got a good one liner. And I think eventually I can work it out to a nice tight five of Adolf Hitler based <laughs> comedy and public relations. And and what better than a nationally, uh, you know, a, a nationally broadcast or a nationally available uh, uh, press conference in front of uh, you know the entire media. Yeah, I, I mean, it's astounding to me because the White Horse, the White House press corps. I mean, there were gifs floating around yesterday on gifs, gifs. I don't know how to pronounce it. Still floating around on on, on Twitter last night, w- showing the reaction of the press corps as he was saying these things. And then, and this is a group of people who who are you know intelligent and looking for opportunities to you know write stories and find conflict. And this was just sort of handed to them, and you literally just looked the the, the look on their faces were. Holy shit! Did that just yeah. really happen? Did that just yeah, happen? The word, the word agog, yes, has never been more appropriate. I yeah. mean, they were just—they were completely agog, yeah. absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah. And then, what, what made it even more astounding is if you watch it, they threw him a lifeline. They threw him a life vest to let him try to clarify it while he was at the podium, and he said, "Fuck your life vest! I'm going to take this shovel and keep digging." Yeah, that was when he real. That was exactly it. That he that he said it, and then they offered him a chance to clarify, and he was just like, "No, I'm good. I'm good." Hitler didn't gas his own people. What's up? Yeah, not only did he not gas his own people, there weren't concentration camps. There were Holocaust centers. Holocaust. So that was actually that. That actually, you know, it's sort of, you know, in a very understated way, might have been my favorite part. Welcome to the Holocaust Center. Yeah, I, it, it immediately brings to mind only one other place. In, in retrospect, we shouldn't have named it this. Because we've done so, we have to do some rebranding. But nonetheless, we're going with Holocaust Center for the time being. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. The Holocaust Center brought to you by United Airlines. That's grim. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. Yeah. And so, and the reaction to... Uh, this, and the is, reaction this is to, for the little children who fail out of taking ship center for children who can't communicate good <laughs> and want to learn to do other stuff good, too. Listen to these two awful men and give you communications advice. <laughs> so the reaction from the, the reaction to this has been, as you would predict, we don't need to get into it at great length. Uh, people have called him a wide variety of names. All of them deserved. Uh, I have to give some credit to the the Anne Frank Center, not to be confused with the Holocaust Center, the Anne Frank Center uh, for uh, really, I mean, you know, you know, coming in hot on this one. Spicer's statement is the most evil slur upon a group of people we have ever heard from a White House press secretary. And that's really saying something, because you should have heard what Rutherford Hayes guy said about the Irish. Oh, man. Never has the word spud been so hateful. Yeah. And, and you know, what's really interesting to me is uh, I'm currently in Israel. Um, so uh, I was a little more aware of the news than many other observant Jews were in the United States at this point. So to some extent, you haven't even seen the real reaction yet. And the White House has now had an extra essential 24 hours to try to fix this thing up. And all they've done is gotten Sean Spicer on the phone with Sheldon Adelson, who's apparently the only Jew that matters to the Trump White House. Other than Jared Kushner, but they decided that would be a little bit, a little bit too chummy. Yeah, I, I mean, considering, you know, 
the the Kushner family history with the Holocaust is, is you know reasonably well known. I mean, his, his grandparents were survivors. Uh, um, you know, just went through absolute horrors and made it through the war. And his family has been incredibly generous and. Holocaust for Holocaust institutions and Holocaust education. So, in particular, for this, and this is following, you know, the the White House's screw up with the Holocaust Remembrance Day statement, where they, you know, left out Jews. Uh, it, it, at at some point, incompetence becomes malice, and I don't know that we're there because I continue to not want to say that Donald Trump is an anti-Semite or Sean Spencer is an anti-Semite. I'm pretty comfortable saying Steve Bannon doesn't like people that aren't white and like him. But I am uncomfortable saying it. He doesn't like Jews. Those are his own words. Yeah. But at some point, incompetence twists towards malice. And the problem is, is that that arc has been bending that direction for quite some time with the Trump campaign and now the Trump administration. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, you sort of have to, and and Frank, you and I have talked about this, but it's sort of, you know, you got to look at the counterfactual at some point as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh God! Yeah, can you imagine if Josh Ernst or like someone like Ben Rhodes had said something oh, like Jesus this? We'd never Christ. hear the end of it. Yeah, can you imagine Ben Rhodes saying something? Ben Rhodes, who now sits on the United States Holocaust Museum's board, which is you know just sort of an outstanding aspect for him. I mean, he's, he's you know more power to him. But I, I can't imagine the reaction from certain aspects of the Jewish community who are are, are blindly pro-Trump for no other reason than uh, he appointed Nikki Haley as ambassador to the UN. Or because Jared Kushner works in the White House, uh, but you know Nancy Pelosi, uh, whose whose politi- political consult numbers were twenty eight in favor, thirty five opposed, and thirty seven percent had never heard of her, which I found the most astounding of all the numbers. Uh, that is stunning. Yeah, the, I'm telling you, the the, the vast right wing conspiracy is really slipping these days. Yeah, it's remarkable that no one has ever heard of Nancy Pelosi because you know vote totals over the last twelve years of campaigns run against her would suggest otherwise uh but Mm. but her statement was quote either he meaning spicer is speaking for the president or the president should have known better than to hire him and end quote and i actually think that there is sort of a third option and he was literally the only person who wanted the job and he is entirely unqualified for it and he has proven week in and week out that he is just not a person who should be briefing the press uh, oh whether, God! Yeah, you know whether it's the small mistakes or the belligerence towards the press, uh, and my understanding, and I mean Frank, you you know some people who know him as well. I don't personally know him, but I know reporters who have dealt with him in the past, and he's been around DC a long time, and he's thought he's generally thought of as a good guy, thoughtful and intelligent and diligent working. So it's sort of remarkable that he ended up in this it, basically, I mean, Sisyphean task. And, and he's well liked by a lot of people, except Dippin' Dots, with whom he has a long running and famous Twitter feud. Right, which also, I mean, it also, you know, that sort of endears him to me because Dippin' Dots are stupid. How dare you, sir? Recollect <laughs> yourself. It is the ice cream of the future today. The ice cream of the future is here today, Jacobs. Can't you understand how amazing that is? Didn't you have that three-colored ice cream bar thingy that you get at, like, the Kennedy Space Center or whatever? That, that's the ice cream of the future. No, that was the ice cream of the past. <laughs> You're living in the past, Billy Jacobs. You quit living in the past. Get with the future of ice cream. Speaking of the past and the future, the past and the future just confounding into one moment, uh, Alex Jones had some interesting statements on Sean Spicer. Oh. 
Yeah, when you're getting clowned on, when you are a Republican press secretary getting styled on by Alex Jones, you know things have gone horrifically wrong. Uh, and basically, his his point on this was, uh, you know, it was it was trying to figure out if Spicer was being sarcastic, which I mean, I guess is an option. Uh, and generally, and generally saying in his inimitable way that you know, this is just an indication of just how how you know how how ill informed and how ill educated and how clueless this crew is. Uh, so there you have it, guys. Uh, Alex Jones writing off, uh, writing off Sean Spicer. This is a thing that is actually happening. We are talking about this. We are talking about Alex Jones writing off Sean Spicer. This is truly dumbest timeline America. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, my sort of counterintuitive approach and my approach last week was that Donald Trump actually hates Jared Kushner, which is why he's throwing all these jobs at him so he will fail on a giant, grand national international stage because he dislikes his son-in-law so much. But I think Spicer is actually just trying to get fighter, fired, and it's not working. And, and it, 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 he's just getting more and more aggravated, trying to come up with the most absurd thing he can do or say, hoping that today will be the day I will, get, I will lose my job, and it's not happening. Uh, earlier today, he, he uh, was interviewed by Greta Van Susteren, um, that wonderful turncoat from Fox to MSNBC at the uh-huh. museum. And he said, quote, he let the president down. Um, and that's not what he did at all. That is a repercussion of what he did, but it is not what he did. What he did was demonstrate callous ignorance about history's worst massacre and then continue to dig a hole due to either egomania, narcissism, aloofness, or disdain for societal, the societal norms of the last 70 years. That's what he did. It was, it was an epic performance. Um, and, and in some respects confirms my own theory, which is that Joan Spicer is actually doing an elaborate performance art piece, um, which, you know, I can't wait to see what he does in his next installation. Yeah. Uh, but turning, but turning now to some, some different news, uh, the, uh, Kansas fourth congressional district had its special election last night. Uh, the, uh, Republican candidate won, won by six points, which is pretty close. That's yeah, a pretty yeah, good, that's, actually, a, that's a pretty good result for the Democratic Party. I mean, I don't think anybody was expecting it to be anywhere near that close. And I mean, the better part about it is that where that's where the Koch brothers are actually situated. Oh yeah, yeah. One of them, I think I, I can't remember which one, but one of the Koch brothers lives in that in that congressional district. I think the other one lives uh, in New York, actually. Yeah, yeah. So this is, but this is. I mean, it, what what happened is this was a twenty-one point swing, uh, roughly twenty-one point swing to Democrats. This is a district that Trump won by twenty-seven points. Uh, the Republican candidate won it by uh, six points. This is a really this this is a good indicator for Democrats. Um, and there is, and so of course, naturally, when faced with a very positive trend, a very positive turn of, event, of events. Being Democrats, we naturally immediately began to uh, to cannibalize uh, each other and to balkanize, to fight each other, uh, and to uh, try and see if there's some way that we can pull defeat from the jaws of what was admittedly a mixed victory in the sense that it would have been great to have won that place. But also, this was a super red congressional district in Kansas, right? Like the idea of winning this thing, it, this was always a desperately, desperately long shot. Uh, but a 20-point swing is really, really encouraging. And so naturally, there's been a debate about particularly whether the DNC or the DCCC, uh, both of whom largely stayed out of the race, uh, whether they, they could have done more. And and there is a, a, there is a fair question to be raised there. The counterpoint to this is when the DNC and the DCCC, particularly the DNC, just about anyone, when they go into a district like, like, like the Kansas Four, what they can offer is – primarily national branding, national issues, 
And the sense was, the analysis here was, uh, the Democratic candidate was doing pretty well on his own politics, which were much more the sort of pretty left, which are pretty left, uh, very much of the kind of Bernie wing of the party, uh, that he was doing pretty well on his own issues. He was doing pretty well on social issues. Uh, and and the presence of, you know, the DNC and the DCCC uh, with sort of a demo, with a national democratic platform and a national democratic profile uh, popping up in that district would actually galvanize uh, and 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 antagonize uh, some conservative voters who might otherwise stay home. We will never know the answer to that question, but I think what you know what I would say is simply this: Let us not lose the fact that there is a twenty point swing here uh, for Democrats, and that is a hugely encouraging turn of events in a debate about whether or not uh, the campaign committees could or should have have done more here. I am not convinced this was ever a winnable seat. I am surprised that it got as close as it did, uh, and I think it augurs well for the future. And we'll talk more in, in coming podcasts about how the DNC and the DCCC and some of the other committees are reshaping themselves to democratic politics. Uh, but but the point here, the, the headline here has to be and must remain, uh, this is a very encouraging turn of events for, for democratic candidates and for the Democratic Party. As a party, we need to understand we have another special election coming up, the Georgia 6th. We need to understand we could lose the Georgia 6th as well. We could come very close there, and we could also lose that one. And that should not be a cause for a loss of hope or a loss of momentum. Uh, it's Obviously, we would love to have won the Kansas 4, although how we would have ever held the damn thing is, a, you know, is another question for another day. Uh, but we would have loved to have won that. We would love to win the Georgia 6th, which is actually a trending a little better. You could, you could make an argument that it is actually beginning to purple slightly, uh, as opposed to Kansas 4, which is a blood-red district that, that, was, that, is, that was up and close because of the trajectory of, uh, because of the way politics have gone, especially with and, – and the, the causal factor here is Trump. That's, that is, that's what's happening. People are reacting to Trump, and they're turning on his party. Uh, but nonetheless, we could lose the Georgia sixth. We have, you know, the Democrat, uh, the you know, the uh, Democrats have put up a pretty uh, have put up a good candidate in Ossoff uh, in the sense he's been able to raise money. He's a very charismatic figure. He does a pretty he makes a pretty good pitch. He's going to win. Uh, he's going to win the right to be on a runoff ballot. It's unlikely that he's going to get 50 percent uh, plus one, which is what you need in order to for there to be no runoff at all. He's got a very long shot at getting that. I don't think he's going to do it. Uh, but I mean, it would be tremendous if he did. If he wanted outright, we would all love that. But I think that's probably a, a little bit too much. And then he will have to face a Republican one on one. That's a doable. That's a doable thing. Uh, it's a, it is a potentially winnable race, but we might lose that one as well. That's not the end of the world. Even if we lose both of these, we hope otherwise. You know, we would hope that we would. We'd hope to win Kansas four. We hope to win Georgia sixth. But there's a reason these seats are open, and it's not that Trump decided to nominate a bunch of moderate Republicans from swing districts to his cabinet. It's because he's taken these really far right uh, congressmen from far right districts and nominated them into his uh, <clears throat> nominated them to cabinet positions, or in the in the case of the Kansas four, uh, nominated the the congressman to head the CIA. So. Uh, there is a again. These are two. This the the broad trend line is positive. Uh, the thing that we have to avoid is uh, turning on ourselves and fi- and fighting it out to to manufacture a loser from what was otherwise, I think, a pretty clear, a, a, a very encouraging, uh, maybe no, a, a very encouraging win of a, of a kind. And we should we should bear the same thing in mind when we head into the Georgia sixth. Yeah, basically, we need to stop being Democrats. Uh, I, I would say I'm gonna God, if only if I'm gonna only. I'm gonna you know put a 
put my number on the line. I'd, I'd say Asaf's got a three in ten chance of winning of winning this seat. Not you know not the runoff and you know against the seventeen Republicans all that. I would just say in the end, I would say there's a three in ten chance that he gets sworn in it to Congress. I do you one better and put it a little worse than evens, but it's but it's certainly no better than than a little. It's certainly no better than worse than slightly worse than even would be my view. Yeah, and, and three tenths is a good figure. Interestingly, um, and, and this is an important. This is one of the the important kind of bellwether numbers for people to pay attention to over the uh, the coming the coming months um, is the sort of the again. This is go back to the political morning consult poll, um, and the question was essentially if there was a congressional election today. In your district, who would you be most likely to vote for, a Democrat or Republican? Uh, people said 43% Democrat, 40% Republican. And that, that is a, um, a, a fascinating uh, switch and a number to really pay attention to over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a, it's a pretty good figure. Uh, one of the things that's worth mentioning is uh, historically the GOP often suffers in, in the party ID question at this stage of the election cycle. Uh, it's you know they 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 tend to dip early uh, and then recover over time, uh, but at the same time, what we just saw uh, last night, what I suspect we will see in Georgia six, whether we win it or not, is they don't usually suffer this much. Uh, the thesis that Trump is not going down well with voters and uh, that the Democratic Party has an opportunity to do some very to do some real good in 2018, I think, is very real. And again, we'll be talking in future episodes about how the kind of party machinery and the progressive infrastructure is shaping up to make that happen. Yeah, I think with that, um, we'll call this episode. We'll cut it a little bit short due to both of our schedules. Again, I'm in Israel. Frank is in D.C. I'll be away for another uh, week and a half or so. Uh, but we're going to try to get another episode up uh, at some point next week. Uh, Frank may try to do a solo episode, episode the way I did with uh, Maggie Moore a few weeks ago. Um, in the meantime, so that you get them uh, as they come up online, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to us. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship. And that's ship with a P as in parasite. Uh, and with that, Frank, where are we going this week? We take ship this week for the great state of Alabama. The state Senate there has just granted a church the right to form its own police department. Now that legislation will be, that, that'll be considered by the, the full legislature shortly. Uh, the state also just saw its governor cut a plea deal and resign. This is the third of Alabama's last six governors to end up uh, either with a conviction or a plea bargain. And now it's having a fire sale on the monopoly of violence, apparently. Uh, Alabama is, this, this is beginning to look a little bit like a failed state, and we smell opportunity. Uh, so we're headed down there to found our own polity, with its own police department, its own fire department, its own DMV, we will have our own department of fish and game ending the tyranny of that particular institution. And we shall have our own bureau of weights and measures. Today we strike down that vile tyrant, the inch, and we go back to cubits as God intended. Utopia awaits. Friends, we take ship now for Alabama. Take care, everybody. Roll Tide! <laughs>